If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, Episode 2.11, News and Plots. The last sequence of episodes has taken us on a trip across the map, from Wales to Cornwall to Yorkshire to the Midlands, and back around to the West Country for the Royalist capture of Bristol. For the most part, we were preoccupied with armies marching around fighting each other. But I hope I have also provided some political and social context, explaining how certain regions and communities were drawn into the conflict. It's been a fun romp, but in order to make sense of what happened in the second half of 1643, we'll have to return to the national narrative we began this season of the podcast with. In other words, London. As you may recall from episode 2.3, Peace and Truth, Parliament began 1643 somewhat divided. At Westminster, an influential peace party emerged under the leadership of Denzel Holes. These men were disappointed by the Earl of Essex's inability to end the war quickly, and they had little interest in throwing England into years of turmoil. Their sentiments were shared in London, where there was growing popular pressure to end the war, as it was having a devastating effect on trade. Negotiations with Charles over the winter of 1642-1643 didn't really go anywhere, though. Talks were undermined by John Pym and other parliamentarians who were determined to fight it out. But the king himself put up roadblocks to a settlement. Charles felt he was in an advantageous position and was not motivated to come to terms when military victory was in sight. As we've seen over the past few episodes, Charles's confidence seemed well-placed. As the war started up again in the spring and summer of 1643, both Westminster and London remained divided. The debate over whether to fight on or strike a deal continued, with the relative balance of power between the two sides shifting with each battlefield news report that arrived in the city. We covered many of the biggest news items last time. Starting in mid-June with the death of John Hamden, the bad news kept flowing for the next six weeks. Losses in the North and the West were accompanied by the failure of Essex's march on Oxford. The fall of Bristol at the end of July capped off a dismal two months. But alongside the flood of bad military news, two political scandals reshaped public opinion in the city. The first had to do with the ongoing attempts to bring Ireland and Scotland into the war. You recall from episode 2.5, The Search for Allies in Britain, that both Charles and Parliament were conducting informal talks to expand the English war into a British one. Charles was trying to broker a peace in the Irish Rebellion, which would allow government forces there to return to England and aid the royalist cause. Meanwhile, parliamentary agents were doing their best to convince the Scots to join their side. For now, all of this was taking place behind the scenes. But in May 1643, the general public got a peek behind the curtain. The Earl of Antrim, the Macdonald chieftain based in Northern Ireland, was captured by Scottish soldiers fighting in Ulster. The Scots had previously held Antrim captive, but he had managed a daring escape and quickly returned to working with his friends within the Irish Rebellion. 
This time, though, the Scots also captured Antrim's correspondence, which detailed a shocking plot. While at York in the spring, Antrim had consulted with the former Covenanter Lord, the Earl of Montrose, and Queen Henrietta Maria. Together, the three of them hatched a plan to prevent a Covenanter-Parliament alliance by staging a royalist uprising in Scotland. This was, in effect, Antrim's old Highlands plot that he had proposed back during the Bishop's Wars. In a future episode, we'll get to how all this played out in Scotland, where the Marquess of Hamilton was still trying to form a pro-royalist party of moderates. Though, as you can imagine, the revelation of Antrim's plot served to draw Parliament and the Covenanters ever closer together. But what interests us for now is the impact this scandal had in England. Evidence that Charles was conspiring with Irish rebels dealt a severe blow to the peace party at Westminster. Once again, the king had proven that he could not be trusted. Any assurances Charles made at the negotiating table meant nothing if he was conducting parallel talks with Catholic rebels. Not for the first, or last time, Charles had made John Pym's job easy. This popish plot required very little window dressing. The plain facts of royal collaboration with a known rebel spoke for themselves. By now, the story is likely getting repetitive. Charles manages to maneuver himself into an advantageous position, only to squander that success by getting involved in an ill-advised plot that undermined those willing to negotiate with him. As if the point needed further illustration, just days after Antrim's plot became known in London, a second, even more insidious scandal came to light. This one had been developing since January, when parliamentary delegates had been in Oxford, negotiating a possible peace with Charles. The hardliners of the war party in Parliament had worried that the peace talks in Oxford were merely a cover for defeatists and defectors to discuss secret plans with the king. And while the talks were in earnest, there was an element of truth to their concerns. Under the cover of negotiations, Nicholas Crisp, a London alderman who had fled the city to join the king at the outset of the war, made contact with former colleagues in London government. His plan was to engineer a coup in the city. At a predetermined moment, a small group of loyalists would seize control of the city's militia and arsenals, while others arrested key war party leaders in their beds. Once London was secured, they would reach a quick settlement with the king. The point man in London for this operation was Edmund Waller, a cousin to William Waller, as well as John Hampton and Oliver Cromwell. This Waller was a member of the House of Commons, still sitting at Westminster. 37 years old, Waller had spent most of his life moving in elite cultural circles. He himself was a poet of the Cavalier School, and had connections to the Earl of Newcastle's literary set through his friend, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. But as befit a man of the arts in Charles's England, Waller was a politician too. He had been sitting in Parliament since the age of 18, and so was one of the few men of his generation to have parliamentary experience when the 1640s came along. In the Long Parliament, Waller, like most men in the Commons, denounced the abuses of Charles's personal rule. But he was reluctant to sign on to more radical positions like the abolition of bishops, or Parliament taking control of appointments to military or administrative positions. As a result, Waller was targeted for recruitment by Edward Nicholas when he was building his Royalist coalition in Parliament. Although he never joined the Royalist ranks, Waller remained sympathetic to the Crown, even after the onset of the war. He even had Charles's permission to remain sitting at Westminster. It was useful to both sides to have a man in Parliament that could act as a go-between. Of course, this also made Waller the perfect instrument to organize a coup within London. 
All through April 1643, Waller and a small circle of friends laid the groundwork for the plot. It would require several components to move in unison, with lightning speed. These men, of course, did not see themselves as traitors, but rather the saviors of England. As one of Waller's accomplices put it, it came from Mr. Waller under this notion, that if we could make a moderate party here in London to stand betwixt the gap and in the gap to unite the king and parliament, it would be very acceptable work, for now the three kingdoms lay a-bleeding, and unless that were done, there was no hope to unite them. In May, official word came from Oxford to set the plot in motion. The signal was smuggled into London by Catherine Stuart, the widow of a royalist officer killed at Edge Hill. Her cover story was that she was in the city sorting out her husband's property, but while in town, she passed on word that the game was afoot. By this time, 17 conspirators were involved, and as we've seen before, the more people in on the plot, the more likely it was that someone would talk. Sure enough, before the plan could be executed, someone did. Waller and his associates were arrested, and the full details of their plot were theatrically revealed to Parliament by John Pym. Two of the ringleaders were hanged outside their London homes, while Edmund Waller managed to get off with banishment. A mixture of bribery and a willingness to rat out his colleagues earned him some leniency. But historically, he has borne the brunt of the shame, as the abortive coup has since been known as Waller's plot. The plot thoroughly discredited the Peace Party at Westminster. Denzel Holes, the leader of the peace faction, was indirectly implicated in the conspiracy. Charles had recently struck Halls's name from the list of parliamentary leaders that would not receive a pardon in the post-war settlement. And presumably, Holes would have seized control of government after the arrest of John Pym and his allies. Holes escaped any direct punishment, but he was forced to step back from the political stage for a time. He applied for leave to go to the continent, but Parliament only agreed on the condition that he take no wealth with him, insurance against the possibility that he might permanently defect. Instead, Holes remained in London, and waited for an opportunity to advocate for peace once Charles managed to rebuild some of his credibility. Knowing this king, Holes was not holding his breath. The simultaneous revelations of the Waller plot and the Earl of Antrim's correspondence with royalist agents severely undermined the peace party at Westminster in June 1643. This was crucial timing because, as you know, Parliament suffered a slew of defeats in the field in the coming days and weeks. Had there been a critical mass of men willing to negotiate with the king, these defeats may have harnessed popular support for a peace deal. But as it was, Charles's underhanded actions eliminated the possibility of a favorable negotiated settlement right when it had the best chance of succeeding. Instead, John Pym exercised an increasing influence over Parliament, and he used that influence to push Parliament towards more radical war aims, particularly in the realm of religion. From the outset of the Long Parliament, the Junto had cultivated a practiced ambiguity when it came to religion. Everyone agreed that William Laud was evil, but beyond that, consensus was elusive. And so parliamentary leaders had deliberately avoided committing to a particular religious program. But by the middle of 1643, that was beginning to change. In part, this was motivated by these stark divisions within the parliamentary camp. Edmund Waller, John Hotham, and other parliamentarians who contemplated defection shared a concern that disorder and dangerously radical ideas were seeping into politics and society especially when it came to religion. The longer the war went on, the stronger these forces of disorder would become. 
But for those who welcomed the abolition of bishops and the total reconstruction of the national church, people worried about changes to the status quo were no better than royalists. I mean, guys like Edmund Waller and John Hotham were quite obviously royalists. It wasn't exactly paranoia to think that anyone else who urged caution in religious reform was a closeted royalist too. Suddenly, you were either on the leading edge of Puritanism, or you were a traitor. Helping this process along were the backroom negotiations with the Scots. As we discussed in episode 2.5, The Search for Allies in Britain, Scotland was hesitant to join an alliance with Parliament until they could be assured that they would be fighting for a common Presbyterian church in both nations. A group of parliamentary leaders, led by John Pym, consciously used religious policy to signal to the Scots that Presbyterianism was one of Parliament's major war aims. With the more conservative Peace Party receding into the background, Presbyterianism, previously a fringe position, suddenly became the norm. This clarity in Parliament's religious policy had been building from the beginning of 1643. The most straightforward way to express support for a radical new church was to destroy anything that smacked of the old one. At the end of March, John Clotworthy, the longtime Junto man with connections in Ulster, led a delegation into the Queen's London residence at Somerset House. Henrietta Maria had, of course, abandoned Somerset House more than a year ago, but it still housed some French men and women protected by the Anglo-French Marriage Treaty. Some of them were members of the Queen's staff, while others were Catholic clergymen. Clotworthy and his men shouldered their way in and arrested the Catholic priests. They also destroyed any symbols of popery they could find, famously tearing apart a painting of the crucifixion by Peter Paul Rubens and throwing its remains into the Thames. But of course, raiding a Catholic household and destroying its idolatrous paraphernalia was not exactly outside the mainstream of English religious life. You can probably imagine Clotworthy's work being widely celebrated at any other point in the podcast so far. Soon after, Parliament took more provocative action. In April, the Committee for the Demolition of Monuments of Superstition and Idolatry was formed to, well, you can probably guess from the name. At first, its work was concentrated in London. This meant tearing down the rails that William Laud had placed around altars, but it could also apply to older decorations as well. Many of the stained glass windows in Westminster Abbey were smashed or reglazed. The most public action in this campaign was the removal of the Cheapside Cross, a stone monument erected in the 1290s to commemorate the death of Eleanor, Queen to Edward I. It consisted of several statues, most notably Mary and her child, topped by an ornate cross, and it dominated Cheapside, one of London's main produce markets. The Cheapside Cross had been a part of London life for centuries, but Henry Burton, one of the Puritans who had been famously mutilated in 1637, called for its destruction when he was released from prison by the Long Parliament. The visual representation of the Virgin Mother smacked of popery. Burton may have also harbored a particular hatred for the Cheapside Cross, because by custom it was where heretical books, such as his own, were ceremonially burnt. Back in January 1642, a few days after Charles fled the city, some London residents decided to follow Burton's directive. But their assault was cut short by the arrival of the city watchman, and one of the would-be iconoclasts fell and impaled himself on the railing that protected the monument, proving that railing served a practical as well as theological purpose. After the incident, the city of London assigned a special guard for the Cheapside Cross. But now, in the spring of 1643, the city government, in coordination with Parliament, reversed its position. The Cheapside Cross would be removed and destroyed. 
the city militia switched from guarding the monument to guarding the workers who dismantled it. An unhappy crowd gathered to watch the work being done. The Cheapside Cross was an important marker of local pride, and the instinct towards iconoclasm was by no means universal. The destruction of the Cheapside Cross was not an expression of popular will, but a conscious effort by the leadership at Westminster to define Parliament's religious war aims and curry favour with the Scots. And nowhere was this project more apparent than the creation of the Westminster Assembly, a gathering of clergymen who were assigned the task of deciding what would replace William Laud's anti-Calvinist church. In mid-June, just after the Waller and Antrim revelations, the assembly opened, populated by suitably Puritan ministers. Meeting Charles halfway on church affairs was no longer on the table. The Westminster Assembly would run continuously over the next few years, fulfilling religious, political, and diplomatic functions. Religious in the straightforward sense that its deliberations would determine the future of the English church. Political, in that its debates over religious policy would inevitably spill out into Parliament, and factional alliances would develop across and within the two institutions. And finally, the Westminster Assembly provided key diplomatic value in the Scottish relationship. Its program of overhauling the English religious system assured the Scots that Parliament was serious about making the English church more like the Scottish one. But at the same time, the slow pace of debate within the Assembly ensured that England's religious future remained open, and Parliament did not have to fully commit itself to Scottish Presbyterianism just yet. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I've been focusing on religion, but that wasn't the only place where Parliament was digging in its heels in the middle of 1643. John Pym used the opportunity provided by the Waller plot and the discredited peace party to stiffen Parliament's spine. He pushed through a revamped oath of loyalty that focused on defending the rights of Parliament and the Church, but made no mention of the King. Then in July, Pym pushed the excise through Parliament. This was the centrally administered sales tax on meat, beer, and salt that I introduced in episode 2.6, Governing War. Instead of withering in the face of the military reversals of the summer of 1643, the setbacks were causing Parliament to strengthen its resolve. Charles had scored some impressive military victories in June and July, but his ability to exploit them politically was severely undermined by failed royalist intrigue. The Waller and Antrim plots ensured that the peace party at Westminster was keeping its collective head down. There would be no negotiated surrender. But this debate over war aims and whether to give in to the king's military successes did not just play out at Westminster. There was a parallel contest of popular opinion going on in the streets of London, fueled by a brand new genre of print literature, the newsbook. This podcast explored the news industry in some detail when we covered the Duke of Buckingham's 1627 expedition to the Isle of Ray. At the time, English news audiences were, in modern parlance, underserved. The Crown refused to license the publication of any European news related to English foreign policy, and so English consumers had to settle for handwritten reports of continental rumours disseminated from London, 
or Corontos, printed pamphlets that briefly covered events in Europe, so long as they did not directly involve England. The censorship regime was not airtight, so it was possible to produce and distribute illegal handwritten material, but printing the news was simply not a viable business model. Buckingham experimented with news media by publishing detailed reports of his progress at the Isle of Ray, but the project fizzled. The expedition itself was a disaster, and Charles had always been reluctant to involve the reading public in England's foreign policy to begin with. Buckingham remained hopeful that the Crown could win popularity with a successful public relations campaign, but after his assassination, Charles returned to his instinctual distrust of popular politics. In 1632, he banned the publication and distribution of all Carantos, whether they involved English interests or not. This was the height of Gustavus Adolphus's career, and reports of his victories in Germany were making the Swedish king a hero in England. Charles didn't want his subjects getting any bright ideas about joining the Protestant war effort. This was a tactical success for Charles, in that he managed to limit the destabilizing effect of news during his personal rule of the 1630s. But in the long term, it was a strategic mistake. Charles did not fill the print media vacuum with government propaganda, as, for instance, Richelieu did in France. Instead, the presses remained more or less silent, and news migrated to the world of manuscript letter-writing. The more primitive technology of the Scriveners meant that they disseminated news less efficiently than the presses, but the Crown had very limited scope for regulating the world of manuscripts. By the time we get to the Long Parliament, manuscript news media was a thriving concern. And suddenly, the demand wasn't for news of battles in Germany, but information about the ongoing political crisis at Westminster and Whitehall. Throughout 1641, the bestsellers were the weekly reports on events in Parliament. Often constructed like the historical annals of medieval monks, these weekly reviews acted like a diary, listing each day's events in turn. At the end of 1641, partly inspired by explosion in the demand for news following the outbreak of the Irish Rebellion, one of these manuscript producers, John Thomas, saw an opportunity. Several months earlier, Parliament had dissolved the Court of High Commission, the church body that, among other things, oversaw the system of licensing the presses. Since then, no clear system of censorship had taken its place. If Thomas produced a printed version of his parliamentary news diary, would anyone stop him? He decided to find out. Starting in November 1641, he began printing a weekly news bulletin, entitled The Heads of Several Proceedings. By the second installment the following week, competitors had already emerged to challenge Thomas's share of this untapped market. Initially, these were not partisan publications. Thomas himself had a long-running relationship with John Pym. In the past, Pym had often used Thomas to leak important speeches or information in manuscript form. But Thomas was no junto hack. He published royalist material, too. In fact, he was willing to publish anything, as London had an insatiable appetite for news of any kind. But Pym was one of the first politicians to see the value of having an outlet in the press, and so he became Thomas's best source. As England divided into two armed camps over the course of 1642, these news books started to become more partisan. The editors, who organized the week's news into digestible chunks, developed their own styles and political leanings, and attracted their own audience of readers. The early days of the industry were competitive and fluid. Most followed Thomas's model of publishing once a week. Monday was a popular day for a regular publication, as Parliament usually took Sunday off. 
This meant that you were unlikely to miss any new developments, as you spent Sunday frantically working the presses. Most historians of print believe that the pressure to put out a weekly bulletin placed unprecedented time constraints on publishers. In essence, they invented that bane of newspaper editors and podcasters alike, the weekly deadline. Estimates of circulation numbers, based on the amount of time it took to print other types of materials, range from 1,000 to 3,000 for the more successful newsbook operations. Though the large number of typos and mistakes in newsbooks compared to other print material suggests that their crews were expected to work much faster. Some publishers took a more leisurely pace by printing their newsbook over the course of the week, rather than rushing through it all the day before publication. But this sometimes led to a newsbook where Tuesday's headlines had to be corrected or contradicted on Wednesday's page. Others solved the problem by printing most of the newsbook in advance, then producing a back page crammed with fine print to update the stale news of the first few pages. London, and especially St. Paul's Cathedral, remained the centre of the news world. The printed newsbooks were sold out of the stalls in Paul's Walk, or sold by hawkers in the streets. Many invariably wound their way through the old national news networks into the provinces, and a few even ended up in America, where colonial settlers kept a keen, if somewhat out-of-date, eye on events back in England. As with most early modern media, it's difficult to be too precise about the demographic makeup of newsbook readership. Rough estimates for the literacy rate at this time are around 30% for men and 10% for women, suggesting that following the news was a pastime for a narrow elite. But there are two points to keep in mind here. First, those estimates are based on the proportion of people who were able to sign their own name, which likely gives a conservative sense of those who could read. Reading requires less skill and training than writing. It's tough to get out a precise number, since the act of reading leaves little evidence, but almost certainly far more people knew how to read than could write. A second caveat is that literacy rates in London were far, far higher than the rest of England. Somewhere around 70-80% to of men in the city and 20% of women had basic literacy skills. Which is important for us because political engagement went quite far down the social scale in London. The apprentices, who played such an important role in the great street battles of 1641 and early 1642, were the spearhead of a politically conscious urban population. The majority of the men and women of the city were reasonably well informed about the debates going on in Parliament and had firmly held opinions about constitutional and religious issues. It's not really possible to condense the popular political consciousness of London's population into a neat little package, but this podcast is all about that kind of oversimplification for the sake of a good story, so let's do it. Historians trying to understand how the average Londoner engaged with Civil War news and politics have often turned to an artisan named Nehemiah Wallington. Paradoxically, the reason Wallington has been so popular among historians is that he was not your average London artisan. He was an avid collector of newsbooks and other print media, as well as a prolific diarist. As a result, he has left a wealth of historical evidence, documenting a working Londoner following the course of the English Civil War. Nehemiah Wallington was 44 when the war broke out, and worked as a turner, in modern parlance a lathe operator. His father, John, had been a turner before him, which gave him a leg up on his colleagues. As the son of a turner, Wallington was able to skip a lengthy seven-year apprenticeship. By right of patrimony, he qualified as a freeman of the city, and was able to set up his own shop at the age of 21. Wallington married, and established himself in St. Leonard Eastcheap, a neighbourhood under the shadow of the Tower of London. 
Though, despite plying his craft for more than 20 years, by 1643, Wallington had made little professional progress. He did enough business to get by, but failed to rise within the Turner's company. By his own admission, Wallington did not have a great work ethic, and he devoted most of his energy to his hobbies and spiritual introspection. But it's those hobbies that make Nehemiah Wallington interesting to historians, because he loved the written and printed word. In some ways, reading and writing saved his life. In his youth, Wallington appears to have suffered through persistent depression. After multiple suicide attempts, he decided that he had to figure out a way to live his life, if only for the sake of his father. The family was a pious one, and suicide was a grave sin that would bring shame to the Wallington name. Wallington found that writing alleviated his troubled mind, and so he took to keeping a diary of his daily life and the great events of his time. It apparently worked for him, as he and his young family managed to work through several tragedies. In the first ten years of his marriage, three of his four children died. Through it all, Wallington kept writing. He ended up filling 50 volumes of his thoughts, accompanied by a collection of over 300 printed publications. Like many news followers in the gentry, Wallington collected published material and wrote his own editorial comments alongside. In fact, it was the jump from manuscript production to printing that allowed Wallington to expand his purchases in the 1640s. Printed material was much cheaper than work that had to be written out by hand, allowing men and women of Wallington's means to join the wealthier classes as news junkies. So while Wallington was by no means your average London artisan, it's unlikely that he was unique in his news consumption. It's also likely that Wallington's understanding of the news was shared by many others. For him, the conflict ripping England apart was primarily about religion. Wallington came from a devout Puritan family. In 1639, he had appeared before Star Chamber, accused of owning works by William Prynne and Henry Burton. Perhaps the public mutilation of the two men had spurred Wallington to seek out their work, though it wouldn't be surprising if a man of his literary interests was well aware of those writers before their famous trial. When the war came, Wallington sided with Parliament, and was particularly concerned by the whiff of Catholicism surrounding the Royalist war effort. Wallington also used his religious principles to carve out his positions on the various debates that divided Parliament. The question of whether Charles should be negotiated with depended on the king's religious convictions. The merits of a Scottish alliance depended on what concessions the English church would have to make. Although Wallington was in many ways an atypical London artisan, the written record he has left us gives us clues as to how his fellow Londoners understood the war they found themselves in. And that understanding was heavily influenced by news media. Very quickly, political leaders became aware of the potential influence the news could have, and as the war escalated, the news books began to do more than simply report the dry facts of the day. Various publications emerged that provided a particular perspective on the war. The Scottish Dove, as the name suggests, tended to advocate for a Scottish alliance, and the Scout furthered the interests of the army. But the most obvious conflict in the press was between straightforward royalist and parliamentarian newsbooks. In modern terminology, the propaganda war. As you may have noticed, I mentioned earlier that London remained the information hub of the kingdom. So the vast majority of the newsbooks were published under the supervision of parliamentary authorities, and for a parliamentary audience. It was not until Charles set up his capital at Oxford that a royalist press could really start up. But once it did, it produced the most successful newsbook of the war, Mercurius Olicus. 
George Digby had suggested to Charles that they needed to get a royalist voice in the national marketplace. And in January 1643, Peter Halen, a clergyman, writer, and longtime ally of William Laud, organized the effort. But the writing itself fell to John Birkenhead, a 25-year-old poet. Birkenhead was the son of a Cheshire alehousekeeper with a natural gift for language. Unable to afford to pay for an education, his father sent him to Oxford as a servitor, essentially someone who paid his way through school by acting as a servant to the wealthier students. This placed Birkenhead fairly low on the totem pole at Oxford. But in 1636, none other than William Laud came across the young man and was so impressed that he hired him as a scribe and took him back to the Archbishop's Palace at Lambeth. From then on, Laud acted as his patron, securing for him a series of academic posts at Oxford. When Laud was impeached and placed in the tower, Birkenhead attached himself to the royal court, writing poems that supported the royalist cause, or poked fun at Puritan rabble-rousers. When Charles commissioned a project to fight Parliament in print, Birkenhead was an obvious choice to take the lead. Mercurius Alicus, which essentially translates as the divine messenger from court, was consciously constructed as a counter-argument to the parliamentary newsbooks of London. Birkenhead wrote about the events of the war, but he also wrote about the misinformation and hypocrisy of parliamentary propaganda. In 21st century terms, he was a kind of media critic. Birkenhead repeatedly pointed out that despite what the London newsbook said, it was Parliament that was introducing radical changes to the Constitution, not Charles. Or when parliamentary writers bemoaned the atrocities of the German Prince Rupert, Birkenhead reminded his readers that Essex's men had sacked Reading. Parliamentary soldiers were as accomplished as anyone when it came to pillage and plunder. But aside from presenting a royalist point of view, what separated Mercurius Alicus from the other newsbooks was his professionalism. Birkenhead enjoyed royal backing and was able to avoid the fly-by-night techniques of the London newsbooks. His publications had far fewer of the typos or irregular formatting of his competitors. More importantly, Birkenhead was simply a better writer. He applied his wit to the task of running down Parliament, appealing to a decidedly highbrow audience with flourishes of poetic license. This was itself part of the project of persuasion. Birkenhead was applying the principles of cavalier poetry to news media. His wit and virtuosity were meant to contrast with the rough, clumsy attempts at manipulation found in the London newsbooks. Uneducated and low-born Puritans were a favorite target for Birkenhead. They had neither the capacity nor the inclination to lead the kingdom. Puritans were only capable of comically misinterpreting scripture and stirring up popular resentments. Governing was beyond them. As you've no doubt picked up on, class played an important role in Birkenhead's messaging. The goal was to peel the landowning classes away from the parliamentary cause by painting John Pym and his allies as religious fanatics, undermining the social order. The success of Birkenhead's Mercurius Alicus inspired a response from Westminster. In June 1643, Parliament passed the Ordinance for the Regulation on Printing, an attempt to reform the censorship regime which had been neglected for about a year. But enforcement remained difficult, and Birkenhead's work kept appearing on the streets of London. A more effective response came from fighting fire with fire. In the summer of 1643, a new newsbook hit the streets of London. Its name, Mercurius Britannicus, indicated its origins as a response to Birkenhead's newsbook. Britannicus was produced by another young product of Oxford University, Marchmont Needham. 
Needham was even younger than Birkenhead, just 23 years old in the summer of 1643. He grew up in Burford, 20 miles west of Oxford, where his stepfather was a schoolmaster. Likely receiving quality instruction from a young age, Needham took to the academic life and qualified for a scholarship at Oxford. He was a recent graduate when the war broke out, teaching at the Merchant Taylor School in London. Though Needham never really had it in him to focus on just one thing. While teaching, he was also studying law and medicine. By the summer of 1643, Needham was ready to add another profession to the list, journalist. He began producing Britannicus as a piece of counter-propaganda to Birkenhead's counter-propaganda. So I guess, counter-counter-propaganda. The Earl of Essex quickly recognized the value of Needham's work and backed him financially. Needham hit back at Birkenhead's witty barbs with his own banter, which adopted a more earthy style, meant to appeal to the men and women of London's streets, not the courtly elite. Needham also pioneered many techniques that would become staples of the modern newspaper industry, such as the headline or selling space to advertise goods and services. In fact, by the time Needham entered the market in the summer of 1643, newsbooks were fast becoming a mature genre of printed material, with their own distinct forms of production, formatting rules, and partisan consumer audiences. All of which is to say that even if the royalist plots of the spring had weakened the peace party at Westminster, the population in London was informed enough to come to its own conclusions about the direction of the war. And the news of Bristol's fall hit London hard at the beginning of August, setting off a panicked atmosphere in the streets. William Waller arrived in London around the same time as the news from Bristol. Despite the fact that Waller's western army had been destroyed at Roundway Down, he was greeted as a hero. Partly this had to do with his previous victories, but partly it also had to do with the growing tensions between Waller and the Earl of Essex. Waller had not been shy about blaming Essex for not helping him in the western campaign. How was it that Charles had been able to send reinforcements west, but Essex could not? Cheering Waller became a not-too-subtle way to criticize Essex's handling of the war. Essex had dithered outside Oxford, while Waller was out there trying to actually win the war. And if you believed Waller, Essex was the only reason he had failed to do so. Maybe what Parliament needed was some new leadership at the head of its armies. This tension between Parliament's top generals put John Pym in a difficult position. His overarching goal was to keep Parliament united and committed to the war. The last thing he needed was an internal squabble at the top of the army. All year, Pym had been trying to placate both Waller and Essex. Essex insisted on treating Waller as a subordinate, and Waller complained that Essex refused to help his western army. The ambiguity of how independent Waller's command really was helped Pym strike this balance. But now, the dispute threatened to break out into popular politics, where Pym would not be able to limit the damage. It seems that Essex was well aware of this. Remember last episode, when Essex offered to resign after being criticized for moving too slowly by Pym and the Committee of Safety? That was Essex demonstrating that Pym needed him more than he needed Pym. Essex knew that Pym would never accept his resignation. He could not afford to let the dispute with Waller become fodder for popular politics. But in early August, with Waller being feted in London and news of Bristol spreading in the streets, the rivalry between the generals did go public. On the 5th of August, the tensions in the city came to a head at Westminster. Popular pressure from London threatened to re-energize the peace party in Parliament. The House of Lords suggested peace terms for another round of talks with the King. 
A crowd of five or six thousand war supporters gathered outside of Parliament to put pressure on the Commons to reject the Lord's proposal. In the course of debate, it became apparent that many of Essex's allies in the lower house supported peace talks. It seemed that the Captain-General was repositioning himself as the leader of a resurrected peace party, backed by popular sentiment. The Commons conducted two days of debate on how to respond to the Lord's call for peace talks. Deliberations were heated, and one member, Henry Martin, was removed from the House for his provocative statement about Charles and his Queen. It were better one family be destroyed than many. Historians often point to this as the first expression of outright republicanism in Parliament. For the moment, Martin's view was unique, but it would not remain so. While Martin's fellow members were disgusted with his rhetoric, they rejected peace talks by a razor-thin margin of seven votes. But Westminster didn't have the final word in the debate. Large crowds supporting the peace talks marched on Parliament to protest. On the 8th of August, the day after the vote, a massive crowd of women blocked the entrance to the Westminster complex. Peace partisans noted that these protesters were the respectable women of the city, wearing white ribbons in their hair to indicate their desire for an end to the bloodshed. War partisans accused them of being whores in the pay of royalist agents. Either way, the protests became heated, with some voices calling for John Pym to be lynched. Eventually, some of the women threw stones at the militia guarding Parliament. A scuffle ensued that left two women dead. The next day, the women returned. This time, they were dispersed by William Waller himself, earning his cavalrymen the unaffectionate nickname, Waller's Dogs. Through the use of such brutal methods, Pym and the war party managed to stabilize the situation. The response to the loss of Bristol would be defiance, not defeatism. But it had been a close shave. Had Denzel Holes and the other leaders of the Peace Party not been disgraced by the plots of the spring, negotiation may have won the day. The August protests also had consequences for the organization of the army. Parliament commissioned a new 11,000-man army for William Waller, drawn mostly from the southern counties that had been spared the fighting so far. The Earl of Essex put up a fuss, but eventually he was forced to recognize that he no longer held a monopoly on military authority. At the same time, Parliament confirmed that the Eastern Association, up in East Anglia, was independent from Essex's command as well. But if Essex lost out in the aftermath of the August protests, he was offered some consolation. Pym knew that he could not afford to totally alienate the Captain General. Essex still remained popular, and besides, Waller's army would take time to assemble. At the moment, Essex's army, though weakened by disease, was the only force available to counter the Royalists in the West. Though before we get to Essex's redemption next episode, there are some other parliamentary leaders alienated by the rejection of peace talks in August that are worth noting. A small group of lords, led by the Earl of Holland, the Earl of Warwick's younger brother, were horrified and disgusted by the Commons' decision to press on with the war. They packed their bags and headed for Oxford hoping the king would be in a forgiving mood. If properly handled by Charles, these defections had the potential to be the first of many. We'll track that development in a future episode. The more immediate problem for Parliament in August 1643 was what to do about the royalist advance in the West. With the fall of Bristol, Gloucester was the only parliamentary strongpoint blocking the road to Wales. If it fell, Charles would unlock extensive reinforcements from South Wales. London would have to put aside its recent divisions and unite under the one man capable of saving the day, 
the Earl of Essex. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.